burning question, prickly topic or uncomfortable issue in agriculture? Sounds like you've got an elephant in your paddock. Hello, I'm Nicole Bond. So Peter Lewis is a former ABC journalist, uh, former EP of Landline, well known across Queensland and other parts of Australia uh, for his involvement with rural Australia, also a foreign correspondent. These days he's still found out in the paddock working with many agricultural organisations to assist them in telling their story. Peter, you're not from a farming background. What is it about agriculture that's gotten under your skin? Oh, look, I think the the authenticity of the people you deal with. I mean, a lot of, cross, a lot of walks of life that journalists uh, come in contact with, they meet people who are, you know, for want of a better word, always selling something. There's always something that they're pushing, whether it's their latest business or themselves. But what I've found over the last, well... 20, 30 years uh, uh, dealing with uh, bushies is that like they're pretty straight up uh, and they've got uh, a lot of uh, skin in their particular game and I think they're very passionate about it. They're certainly very passionate about uh, their businesses and their families and very passionate and very committed to making sure that as much as possible they're passing on a better business uh, to their kids and, and better land and all those kinds of things. So that struck me. Uh, and I, you know, used to, you know, form some really nice friendships out there. I think travelling was an important part of it. Going and meeting these people where they live was really important. I think my storytelling was certainly better informed by going where they are rather than relying on just doing it at arm's length over the phone or, or whatever. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of enjoyed both being where they live and work hearing their stories and hearing about, you know, what they felt were the, were the big issues that affected who they are and, and, and where they lived. And, and I guess most importantly, hearing from them about why they continue to do what they do. For you, what, what's the elephant in the paddock? What topic have you not been able to resolve yourself in, in the many people you've spoken to, the, the long time you've been observing the industry? What needs to be addressed and no one's talking about? Look, a lot of a lot of places I've visited in the bush lately, I've I've sensed a rising level of frustration about existing political representation. Folks don't feel the two or three major parties really get what they need these days, and I'm talking both state and federal level. The smart ones don't think independence are the answer either. So, so where do they turn to next? That's what they're asking me. What needs to happen to the Australian political landscape? to address the big challenges that the bush faces now and that the bush will face, you know, in the, in the short to medium term. I don't think we'll find the answer at Parliament House, will we? I don't think it's there. Not, not currently, no, not with, not with the current group, the current cohort. I don't think so. I think there's a, there's a yeah, there, there's, a, there's a, a big disconnect uh, between... Um, George Street in Brisbane and Parliament House in Canberra and and, and the folks who are uh, producing the food and fibre. How intensely are you feeling this question? Is it something that's been growing for a long time? Do you feel like it's really coming to a head? Look, I have. I think, um, it, it, you know, I covered federal politics, you know, um, an awful long while ago. So I've had a bit of a sense and a bit of a vantage point from, um, you know, from Canberra and a little bit of understanding of how it works 
And I think certainly, you know, in the last 10 years and really in the last five years, um, I think there's been a there's been a growing resentment about uh, in the bush about how they're represented, who they're represented by, and, and and a frustration that when all said and done, like more is said than done, there's not a lot of fundamental changes uh, happening. And at the same time, I think there's a a real big concern that fewer and fewer people who live in our big cities really understand what goes on out in the bush. The daughter of a Singaporean migrant, Gabrielle Chan grew up in Sydney, but the city girl, with a little help from Cupid, has crossed the divide from urban to rural living and proudly flies the flag for the regions while keeping her toe in a city environment. A journalist for 30 years, she currently writes for The Guardian and in September published an insightful book, Rusted Off, a case study of a widening gap between city and country. Welcome. Welcome to the elephant in the paddock, Gabriel. Feel a sense of what Peter's talking about here. Do you agree with um, his underlying Yeah, absolutely, I do. I think there's a a huge level of frustration uh, out in regional areas and it stems, I think, from a sense of distance, not just physical distance from power, but metaphorical distance from power, that that incapacity to really get into the centres of power that will change decisions for local communities on the ground. Um, so I think there's that. My conclusions in the book are really, as to Peter's question, are um, essentially communities organising and engaging and working out what their own priorities are and then putting them to government because we're living in a very disrupted political environment now. So we've seen the votes for Brexit, we've seen votes for Donald Trump, uh, we're watching our own government, you know, reacting and fracturing within the coalition itself and we're also, you know, watching the opposition trying to respond to all of these different things and lots of minor parties and independents rising up. So I think for communities which are watching all this and thinking how the hell uh, is the voter, the ordinary voter in rural and regional Australia going to get a go in all of this? I think the answer is to write your own solution. Can we take one step further back from the situation? What has happened? You mentioned in your response there that the political system is very disrupted. I guess if I look at it in my lifetime, and I'm in my 50s and economic rationalism started in the 80s, really when I was a baby journalist. And so our whole frame, I think, for for people in their middle age today was around um, things having to become more efficient. So systems, companies, businesses, governments, towns, everyone talked about the free market and efficiency mantras and, you know, if you're a farmer, you had to get big or get out. I know in our town, we're a railway town, so the railway was the big employer in town. It provided the majority of jobs. As the railway was rationalised, those jobs went and we we went from a couple of hundred jobs down to I think there might be one person now working on the railway. 
So these sorts of structural changes really change the social and economic landscape of regional Australia. Now, some people did really well out of that. And, you know, agriculture is in that kind of funny stage where parts of it are doing really well and parts of it are are struggling. The um, fabric of what we knew changed. So it changed in that sense for us on the ground. In politics, which I was watching, it changed in the sense of politics became a profession. So what we used to see is that people would come from outside lives and come into politics and apply what they knew from outside to politics um, inside the parliament. That changed in a sense that people started to look to politics as a profession. So they would start from a young person in politics, they would get involved all the way through, and they became very much welded onto that. And so you used to see what we see now quite regularly, and that is, you know, people talk off talking points, they people and it, voters will say, you know, they, they don't sound like people on my main street. They don't sound like me. They, they talk in this kind of very smooth language and I think people don't trust that. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't see themselves in the politicians that represent them and I think that has caused a deep disquiet for many people. And so take those two things together, a disrupted social and economic landscape outside of parliament, a rise of the professional politician inside parliament, combine them together and you get these two different sides, you know, of of the argument looking at each other, not understanding one another. You've been a journalist for a long time and a political journalist. I've been a a country journalist for a long time. Do journalists need to, um, or does the 24-hour news cycle need to put its hand up and take a bit of responsibility here as well? Oh, absolutely. It, It really does, you know. And if I think about the changes in my lifetime from the time I was in New South Wales Parliament in the early 90s to now through the Canberra Press Gallery, you know, we had a lot more time. Media companies had a lot more resources to spend time on stories. Now we're just running from one story to another and that makes it really hard, that lack of resources. But also we have, through the internet, become, um, media companies have become insatiable. You know, we need that next hit, that next story. Stories need to change, you know, on front pages um, every couple of hours. And so it necessarily kind of pushes journalists journalists towards, you know, getting that next kind of sugar hit um, instead of burrowing deep down into stories and, and looking at why things are happening. So if you think about the way political journalism works now, it's very hard to get out of parliament. Literally, it's very hard to get out of parliament because, you know, staff's, staff is stretched. You just can't get outside. I'm talking to you from the seat of Maranol, which is a very safe seat, which has been in drought for a long time. When I talk to people, I do hear that they're dissatisfied with the political system, but they still vote um, LNP or, or nationals uh, through. Is it the voter that needs to change or the politicians that need to change? Well, in my book, I argue that both 
need to change. For example, with regard to the National Party, and I'm aware that, you know, like the National Party represents rural and regional seats, mostly in the eastern states. There's a different version of the National Party, so I'm aware there's different beasts. So, But let me say generally, um, I argue that both voters and politicians need to change in the sense that voters, I think, uh, are getting less patient and so they are looking around for other options and I think we'll see that in the upcoming New South Wales and federal elections this year. But I would also argue that voters have a responsibility to look at those options sensibly and think about what benefits their local community, not just in a dollar term sense but in a strategic sense. And if if uh, your local representative doesn't offer a, a longer-term view that you want to see for your area, if they're just kind of splashing money around with no strategy, then you would want to question that, that local representative on what their, what their vision is for, for your place. On the political side, I think the main thing that I heard, ordinary people in my area, was that they are sick of politicians favouring their party over their voters' interests. And that's where you get into strategic ground where, for example, the National Party has to think deeply about questions. Does it need to be in coalition with the Liberal Party? What is the best thing that will benefit regional voters first over their party? So that is, you know... You may want to be a minister, but maybe it might um, benefit you in this disrupted environment to actually continue in the parliament in a more independent frame. In rural communities that I've had experience with in Queensland, often there can be a sense internally, we're important, we feed the nation, we're going to be looked after, that, that the rest of the country needs us. But how, how strong or how important is the rural vote in politics? I think the rural vote's really important. I mean, I think of rural Australia, I mean, some people kind of uh, have different numbers, but generally 30% of Australia is, is the proportion of rural and regional voters. If 30% of our representatives really voted for the interests of rural and regional Australia, we would hold the balance of power in any parliament. So why wouldn't you use that? You know, every there's a million independent candidates trying to get onto that crossbench to hold the balance of power. Um, you know, uh, rural MPs could hold that balance of power any time of the, the week if they um, voted in terms of the interests of their voters over uh, their party. So not everyone's going to agree on the same policy issues, but in a way... Uh, I think that we should be starting between rural and regional MPs. It's, okay, what is the common ground that we can agree on and then move outwards from there? Whereas what's happening now, particularly in the coalition, is you're seeing these two sides of the coalition vehemently disagreeing but trying to, um, for the sake of the party, be dragged onto the same page in policy terms. I think they should be... <laughs> reversing it, flipping that over and saying, what are the things that we can agree on? And particularly rural MPs, I mean, should be caucusing 
working and saying what are the things that we can agree on to benefit rural Australia and then working outwards and adding adding on things. Um, and I think that's probably been a reflection of the success of the crossbench in, in that you're seeing those crossbenchers, the independents now caucusing or getting together in a room the way parties normally do and saying, okay, what is it, the one thing we all agree on? So the one thing they have agreed on in the last term is... Uh, a federal independent corruption commission. They largely agreed on the Medivac bill uh, about allowing asylum seekers uh, into Australia for medical attention. They agreed on a bank royal commission. So they started with those things and there was a sense afterwards that, wow, so something was achieved out of that. You know, if you you, um, reflect that and taking the whole of rural Australia, what is what are those things that we could all agree on and then push through Parliament, you know, I think that would be a much better recipe for success because, frankly, at the moment, voters are frustrated and, and a lot of politicians I talk to are frustrated in the Parliament too. Um, so maybe it's time, if everyone's frustrated, maybe it's time to have another think about maybe doing this a different way. What I wanted to ask you also, we've been really talking about the politicians and that area, but I want to kind of broaden our discussion now to talk about how some rural communities have responded to that feeling unrepresented, the ones who have been successful. What have you found with them? They have organised. So I keep going back to McGowan because really she changed the landscape for a lot of electorates Um, because once they did what they did in Indi, there were a lot of um, people in other electorates that went down there to learn and they they shared basically their recipe um, for changing there. So what they did is organise firstly. So... In that, in her case, uh, there was a group uh, of people that started a thing called Voices for Indi, which didn't start as a way of changing their MP, just started as a way of engaging more in politics. So how can we get a better conversation going between our MP and people on the ground in our electorate? They worked out what their priorities were. So they, they talked to people widely using kitchen a thing they call kitchen table conversations where they started having discussions with people as to, you know, what is important to you in your town? What, what are the things that you really would like to improve, change? Um, what are the things you like? And so how would that uh, translate into, into policy terms? And so they settled on, I think it was a a bunch of priorities, probably five priorities, took it to their local member uh, and the local member, uh, according to Voices Friend, I didn't want to engage in that process. And so they looked around and did a sort of pre-selection process of sorts to work out if someone could stand as an independent. Um, So that's one way of doing it. Other, other people, you know, other towns, and I know our town is, has started to look at priorities of the town. And, and that process alone, I think, is really enlightening because a lot of the discontent on the ground now is hard to translate into specific terms. So people might say, 
you know, my MP doesn't, uh, doesn't represent me. But what does that mean? What do you want your MP to do? You know, what is it that you are upset about in your local area that you think should be improved by government? And even thinking about what is it that government can do? Because one of the points I make in the book is that government can't solve everything. You know, Laura Tingle's done a fantastic essay, a quarterly essay on this. You know, what do we expect from governments and what realistically can government do for people? A lot of the time government hasn't got control over everything. You know, if you think about trade, government used to control trade. Government used to control the Australian dollar. It doesn't anymore. So government are, um, are as disrupted in a sense as, you know, as, as voters. Um, so work out the things that are the priority to your community work out which bits of it that government can change and then go and have a conversation with your local MP about which, which are the things that that person can change. And then from there, if you get no responses, then, you know, it's up to the community what they do about that. But at least you will know that you've had a go at a specific, you know, program that you would like to see implemented if you're not satisfied with the status quo. I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but time is ticking on. So I just want to draw you back to our main question again, um, having had the discussion. And, you know, just in your response there, you talked at the, about the separate voters, the separate ways of behaving. If you could give us a nutshell response, what do you think needs to happen to the political landscape to address the big challenges that the bush faces now and into the short to medium term? I think communities have to get more active about what they want. Uh, that doesn't mean, mean tipping out your local member, but it means really enunciating what it is that your local community needs, finding out how you go about getting that for your local community and engaging in uh, politics and engaging with local members to work out what it what it is that politics can deliver and and be realistic about what politics can't deliver as well. Um, some of the best examples I've seen uh, of, you know, change in rural areas have come from the communities themselves. It's not government imposing top-down solutions. On the government side, I would say to political representatives, local communities really want ways of customising their policy solutions for their own area. Uh, too often we see these government solutions imposed from the top down without any uh, consultation, meaningful consultation. I don't mean ticker box consultation that says, oh, we asked you and you said this, but then we implemented that. <laughs> meaningful consultation from rural and regional communities. And unless that sort of consultation and listening happens, I think we'll keep seeing uh, disrupted political uh, outcomes. Vaughan Johnson was the member for Gregory in Western Queensland for 25 years. He was first elected in December 1989 and left in January 2015. A staunch National Party member, he sometimes flirted with controversy when towing the party line. 
He's also a grazier and not only grew up in the bush, but has lived here ever since. Vaughan, do you think that voters are frustrated currently? Absolutely, absolutely. The reason why voters are frustrated at the moment, especially rural voters, is because so many uh, people in the electoral system, and when I say the electoral system, the basis of our populations in Queensland is based in the southeast corner, where the bulk of the members of parliament reside. And the real fact of the matter is that uh, they hold most of the high-profile positions in cabinet or or not other positions in in uh, secretarial roles, etc. And we have we are very minute in our numbers in rural and regional Queensland. And uh, I believe that rural members of parliament have a better generalisation of what's going on in the state than what the uh, southeast corner based politicians have because they are mainly uh, specialists in their own areas. Now that you're out of politics, you've been out for a few years now, what do people say to you about current politics? Well, they're fed up to the back teeth with it. There's too much infighting. There's not enough happening. And the dollars that are being generated all appear to still be, uh, well, not generated, not being generated, but the money that has been spent is still channelled into the southeast corner. The federal spectrum's no different. And uh, I've spoken with many federal members of parliament from both sides for that matter, and especially from my own side, and we only got to look at the recent New South Wales state election. The reason why there's been the fallout there against the sitting government in New South Wales is because, again, the country areas have been treated with neglect. And here in Queensland, the country areas are still treated with neglect. Do you foresee this trend or the way that this is going changing at all? I think there'll be a big fallout from this current uh, federal election that's coming on because uh, of all these minor parties that are springing up, some 20 of them, I believe, of independence, etc., etc. And this is the reason why, because people are not getting from their own parties what they believe they should be getting in that, that representation. When we, when we uh, not the representation so much, their fair share of the budget cake, to put it that way, road funding, and uh, those types of things are very, very important, very integral to this part of Queensland and to Australia for that matter. And at, and the, at the end of the day, I just feel that uh, after this election, we are going to see big fallout as a result because uh, I think we'll see the demise of these minor parties where the uh, people will say, well, listen, we better start listening to these people in rural and regional areas because they know what it's all about. And if I can say the people that have got to be listened to in the rural and regional areas are the women. They are the ones that carry the burden most times. And I believe they have a better understanding, a better comprehension of what's going on around them than what the men folk do, because the men folk are concentrating primarily on the uh, trying to generate a dollar to keep the operation going. You mentioned there that you think there's going to be fallout from this federal election. What do you mean by fallout? What I mean by fallout is I think there's going to be seats lost in a lot of the regional areas of Australia for that matter. And the, the reason being is because the, um, the uh, big city governments like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth are too busy, the, uh, the members of parliament are too busy concentrating on their respective city areas and you've got to look at Australia as a whole 
Australia, the dollars are generated in the rural and regional areas. You know, in Queensland, give you an example here in Queensland. Our largest manufacturing industry in Queensland is our meat processing industry, which is based in the southeast corner primarily. And two thirds, I'll use cattle for an example, two thirds of Queensland's cattle are processed in the southeast corner. And a lot of those cattle come out of these western areas, northwestern areas, and even drawn from the territory. If they're not, if they uh, not finished in feedlots or go to sale yards in the south or the eastern side of the state, they are finished. The processing plants in the southeast are uh, ones that process them when the job's right. And uh, a lot of people don't realise that, and that's why it's so important that our live cattle export industry be maintained and at the same time it's very important that the associated infrastructure that goes with look at the uh, management structure of, uh, of abattoirs and feedlots and sale yards, we have the necessary infrastructure associated to get the, those stock to the marketplace, whether it be by road or by rail. And if we are going to grow central western Queensland, western Queensland, the road infrastructure has got to be growing with it. It's going to be the minor parties, I believe, that are going to make inroads if the major parties, I'm talking Labor here too, as well as the Conservative parties, if they don't show leadership and, and, and genuine interest in what's happening in rural and remote Australia and rural and remote Queensland for that matter, it will be the minor parties. We've only got to see what's happened with the Catter Party over the last 20-odd years. Bob Catter holds a seat of Mount Isa, he's, uh, the seat of Kennedy. His son, Robbie, now holds a seat that was Mount Isa, now uh, Traeger, and uh, they've got the seats of uh, up in the north coast there, Ryan, and also the seat of... Um, the other one on the north coast here, I can't think of it offhand. But the point I make is they are tradi traditionally National Party seats. and uh, Hinchinbrook, I think it is. They are the seats that traditionally are National Party seats. So, you know, if it's too many of our politicians and, and both parties becoming too ignorant, too arrogant of what's going on outside. And that's why people are rebelling and they'll continue to rebel. So do you see the minor parties as a as an option for for the bush like we we want to know what needs to happen in the political landscape to address the challenges of the bush will the minor parties be able to do that what's your concern with the minor parties well my concern is with the minor parties i don't have a big concern with them with the Catter Party, for an example now, and Bob Catter has been espousing a lot of different policy statements in Canberra over the last 20-odd years. He hasn't been listened to, especially in the areas of dams, water infrastructure and other infrastructure associated with the area that he represents. And I believe, you know, the Bradfield scheme is one that Bob Catter has been really campaigning on ever since I've been in politics in 89. And these sorts of programs are major beneficial programs to developing inland areas, developing rural and regional Australia, not just here in Queensland, but other state, other state projects too. Now, you were a staunch party man. I remember speaking to you years ago, probably in, toward the end of your political career when Campbell Newman was in and things weren't going great for you under his leadership. And I remember asking you why you wouldn't just run as an independent because it was such a safe seat you would... But you explained to me that, um, that, that the party was important to you. Given what you've said about seats uh, going to be lost to minor parties... Is party politics relevant anymore for country people? 
party politics is, is relevant, very relevant to country people. But what happened under the Campbell Newman, under the Newman government, was to uh, to disrespect the formulation, the policy that was formulated by the policy units, the party policy units, and uh, a lot of those policies were disregarded. And you know, the one thing that I always disagreed on was the uh, is the uh, number of public servants that lost their positions under the uh, Newman government. And I said to the Premier at the time, I said, the way to handle this is uh, through natural attrition. And, uh, you know, that should have happened. And people do change jobs and move on. And you can do that in a way without bloodletting. And, you know, these people have got families, they've got uh, mortgages, they've got all these sorts of responsibilities that the everyday Australian's got. And you don't kick someone in the guts when they're trying to do the right thing. And I believe that a lot of those people were kicked in the guts by a government that I was a member of, which saddened me greatly. But the other side of the equation, those policy units that formulate policy, I think that they had a kick in the guts too, because a lot of those policies were never, ever implemented. They were formulated by the grassroots people, and that's very, very important. And what happened at that 1990, at the 2015 election, the LNP government in Queensland was thrown out of power on its ear because it was treating the people of Queensland with so much contempt. Did that happen because we see, we hear a lot, particularly in this current um, election campaign, about is it about a, a person? Are we becoming an American-style political system where it's all about who the leader is? No, I don't believe it is. I believe the biggest problem is that too many of our politicians in the higher-profile areas of responsibility are so ill-informed, so uneducated on the geographics of the, of the country in question. And you can talk about Australia as a whole, you can talk about Queensland as a whole. As I say, in Queensland, for example, a lot of our politicians are south-east corner-based and they have no idea, no comprehension about what we face in rural and regional Queensland or rural and regional Australia, for that matter, if you want to take into, into, into account the federal sphere too. And... Uh, that's why people are jacking up. They've had an absolute bloody gutful. I've been treated as second-rate citizens. I've given the crumbs off the table. And that is why we are seeing these minor parties springing up because they are singing the song of a lot of people what they want. And Pauline Hanson's no, no different. And she is saying the things that a lot of people are thinking, the same as what Bob Catt is doing. And that's the reason why they are getting the following they're getting. So back to our key question, which is what this is all about. What needs to happen to the Australian political landscape to address these challenges that the Bush is facing, to get a more functional government for country people who are a minority of the population? What needs to happen is parties all need to make certain that they uh, select candidates that are educated and informed of the geographics of the business of the businesses that go on in those electorates. I always said when I was the when I was in cabinet in the in the Borby Sheldon government, you should know something about every portfolio area. When I was the Minister for Transport, I, I believed I could answer questions on any portfolio area because around the cabinet table you learn what the other person's doing or what's happening. And uh, if you've got that base knowledge, well, you can perform properly. And I think that every member of parliament, whether they're in cabinet or not in cabinet, should have that, uh, that ability to be able to know what's going on in every part of the state. And I believe that's not happening with the selection of candidates. They're more interested in uh, 
just their own backyard. It's about getting their backsides on a seat in Parliament, which is absolutely detrimental to the ongoing uh, and forward development and productivity of the state or the nation for that matter. Do you think um, electorates turning to the minor parties is going to be enough to make the major parties make those changes? Well, if it happens at this federal election, yes, it will, because uh, I believe that the, the major parties now will say, listen, we've got to start listening to the people, and uh, if they don't listen after this, well, it's going to be chaotic. And uh, I really think that... Uh, I heard somebody say on the, on the media the other day, we've got to get back to two parties, a, a Conservative Party and probably the Socialist Party, if you want that way. It's not my line of thinking. thinking. But uh, the way I look at it is, if you've, uh, if you've got two sets of policies to pick from, at the moment, everybody's trying to please somebody. And, and when you've got the, a big cake to split up and say, well, we're going to give a bit to that bloke and a bit to somebody else, well, it's not going to work. It'll never work and uh, we've got to get fair proportions right across the spectrum. Do you think politics is going to get more chaotic and worse in the near future before it gets better? Yes, I do, because, uh, well, in the federal sphere now, if we get a, uh, a Senate that's not going to support the uh, government of the day, well, it's still going to be chaotic. The government won't be able to get their uh, policy and their, implement their plans to get through the, uh, get through the parliament. And all that is is detrimental to the people of Australia, especially, you know, you've got to think about what it's about. The democratic process is uh, in, in whether you're in government or whether you're in opposition, you've got to respect the, uh, the vote of the majority of people. And uh, that's exactly and precisely what's not happening in this country at the moment. The Senate's got control, which is not the, uh, ma the, uh, the majority of the people of Australia have voted for the uh, Conservatives to be in power at the moment, but it's not that way in the Senate. So therefore the programs are not implemented or not passed by the Parliament. Do you think the coalition has a purpose anymore? The co like as in the partnership between the Nationals and the Liberals... Do the Nationals still need a coalition or can they turn back to the bush and just exercise their strength in regional seats? They have got to split that. They've got to split the LNP again. The National Party has got to go alone again and to represent those rural and regional areas that they did so well in the past over a lot of years. That's why I joined the party back in 1972 for that prime reason because they represented what the rural and regional areas stood for. And I believe now under the banner of the LNP, the majority of the LNP people are in the southeast corner. As I say, I've got no comprehension at all of what's going on in rural and regional Queensland. And at the end of the day, the National Party people knew what was going on in their own backyard. And as I said earlier in this interview, they also have a fair understanding of what's going on in the coastal areas and the southeast corner. And I think that is a very, very good... Uh, uh, a broad church to be able to uh, say that you understand the complexities of what politics is all about and the way it is at the moment the uh, the national party members in the LNP are just virtually a nothing and uh, I was a, uh, a member of a government that felt that way and a lot of my colleagues around the state still feel that way now a lot of my older colleagues are saying we should revert back to the national party and I can tell you even in the federal sphere they want to stand alone as one party, and I believe it's constructive, positive, and the only way to go. Do you think um, a new rural party is the way to go, or strong independent politicians who can hold the balance of power? 
No, I believe a, a strong standalone national party, call it a rural party if you want to, is the way to go because the productivity of this nation is generated by rural rural, rural areas, you know, whether it's the coal mining area, whether it's the agricultural area or whether it's other areas in within the uh, other uh, productivity within rural and uh, remote areas because we are a nation that produces the bulk of our goods outside of those areas in question where the population is and uh, the transportation needs, the... Uh, the needs of the people, we need health needs too, we need education needs too, we have aged care issues, we have social needs like mental health issues, we have many, many issues. And I said in the earlier part of this interview, the people in my time, in the 25 years I was in politics, eight out of 10 people who came through my door with a problem with the women of the house. They're the ones, that they're, the, they're the custodians of the house most times. They're the wife, they're the mother, they're the lover, they're the bookkeeper. They're the ones that manage the budget. They're the ones that knew everything that was going on. And uh, when, the, when those women did come with an issue, they are the ones that I believe were the ones that turned and resolved issues in, in our region in question. I've been criticised for that, but I'll stand by it because I experienced it and I saw it happen. And, uh, you know, they are the ones that can stand up at forums and speak from experience. I've been to ICPA conferences on education, and it's the women that lead the charge. There's good men there too. Don't let me put the men down. I'm not. But it's the women, I believe, that have been treated with contempt in a lot of areas of policy formulation and moving forward to get the recognition that we deserve for rural and remote Queensland, rural remote Australia. You're listening to There's an Elephant in My Paddock podcast for the Rural Financial Counselling Service. I'm sitting around the kitchen table with Vaughan Johnson, a former member for Gregory and Storch National Party member. Vaughan, I want to ask a couple more questions away from that specific party stuff. But d- despite agriculture and food production contributing to a, a lot to state and federal industry, voters feel like they're often overlooked in policies that affect food production made dubious with consultation processes. Should the voters be valued more? Absolutely. The value <coughs> voters, we are all a part of a, uh, of, a, of, a, of, a uh, of a nation. Regardless of where we live or what we do, the voters should be listened to in what they are saying. And I believe that in the areas that I've represented here in Western Queensland over that 25-year period, and I still live and reside here in Western Queensland... I still don't believe that the voters have been treated with the respect and the courteousness that they deserve. And as I say about uh, policy formulation, it's all very well saying, yes, we're going to have policy, but if that policy is going to look after the majority of the, of the voters, it's not looking after all the voters, and that's where they're going wrong. Big city governments are going wrong because they're not paying their uh, attention to the rural and regional areas. And both major parties now, with this federal election on, we're on the uh, cusp of a federal election, they're all starting to look to the region, especially here in Queensland, for that support to get them over the line. I just hope whatever party does get over the line, that they're not going to forget rural and regional Queensland or rural and regional Australia, because that's where the real value and the future worth of our nation is going to come from. The majority of Australia's citizens live on the coast or live in the city. Do country voters, rural people, do we just need to get used to the fact that we're a minority and um, 
and deal with that politically? No, we don't have to. We don't want to get used to being a minority. We have got to rebel and stand up for what we believe is right. And that's what I always did when I was a member of parliament. I even rebelled against the party lines at times in relation to issues that I didn't think was going to be beneficial to the part of the country that I represented or the people that I represented. And uh, I've seen it time and time again in the party round where you virtually um, were treated with contempt because of the situation that, you know, the majority thought they knew best. But when you, when you live in an area, you're working with the people, you see the people bleeding internally, you are not got to just sit back and say, it'll be okay. You shouldn't be a member of parliament if you sit back. And I never sit, sat back and I, and I just hope the future members of parliament represent these rural and, and remote areas don't sit back either because we have people that need, have needs too and uh, you know we've got to uh, we've got to fight for every last cent that we get now and uh, i really think that uh, as i say of this forthcoming federal election there could be a real uh, wake up uh, call there for both major parties to think well rural and regional australia is, more, is, uh, is of more worth than what we've given them uh, credit for. Environmental policy is often at the heart of rural voter disgruntlement and can win um, easy votes in urban areas. How do we bring that voter power back to the bush? Do we need to be like the French agricultural system that really makes themselves heard and striking on the streets? Or is do you think there's another way? I think sometimes we have got to be more vocal. And, and uh, if, if there's got to be, uh, I'm not one for violence, but I'm certainly one to stand up and be counted. And uh, when you talk about the environmental issues, especially here in Western Queensland, we've been living in this part of Queensland now, our forebears and ourselves for the last 150, 160 years. And it's one of the driest continents on earth. We have uh, run very good cattle and, and sheep grazing operations and further in good farming operations. And I believe that what people, what, uh, people are discounting us for the way we've managed this land over those long period of t- over that long period of time. We are conservationists ourselves. And if we weren't conservationists or environmentalists, we would have perished in this country a lot of years ago. And I think it's about time that our, our, our city brothers and sisters started to realise just the worth of the Australian bush people, especially our pastoral farming people and, the, and their worth and what they do towards generating profitability for the majority of the nation. And uh, I think it's got to a stage, yes, there could be a revolution any time soon in relation to the way that rural and, and uh, 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 rural people, agricultural people have been treated. We've seen uh, people getting uh, uptight now what's going on in the coal mining industry and it's no different in, in with, our, uh, with our live cattle export or any other issue relevant to farming. And, you know, this vegan issue that's going on at the moment, those people are absolutely uh, living in a, in, a, in a criminal zone for what they are doing is taking away the rights of good, solid sound-minded business farming operations and uh, just because they are a very minute, minute group of people they are, uh, they are bordering on criminal activity and should be treated as such. You know, you were in politics for such a long time. You know, you've really seen it change. You've seen it come into the 24-hour news cycle. You've seen this more populist um, politicians, um, personality politics coming to the surface. Do you think, if you can think about 
the here and now, not about during your time, perhaps toward the end of your time, but do you think there are still politicians around who can get to the heart of rural issues and industries and still be taken seriously by their city counterpart politicians or, or their parties? Yes, I do. But at the same time, it comes back to what I just said a while ago. Those people have got to have an understanding of what the city people's needs are as well as the country people's needs are. And uh, I think we've got to be educated in all facets of industry right across the state and the nation for that matter. And uh, people have got to have show more guts and more determination, you know. Just just because you get knocked down once you don't lay down, that's not, that's not a part of my forte. And uh, you've got to demonstrate what you're there for. You know, when I was elected on the 2nd of December 89 to represent the people of Gregory, I didn't come into the... I didn't come here to represent the people of the National Party. I came here to represent every living soul in this electorate, whether they voted for me or not. And that's exactly and precisely what's not happening today. A lot of people think that because they're elected to Parliament, they just, they just uh, represent the party that put them in there. Well, no, it's not like that. I know when I got elected in 89, I only just scraped over the line, but by the time I'd finished that I had built up a, a pretty good margin. But you don't get that by sitting back and taking, taking people for granted. And uh, you've got to sell yourself, but you've also got to take on board what they are saying and what they are wanting. The way I read it now is that we don't have the, uh, the voice that we deserve in these parts of Queensland because the numbers are in the southeast. And uh, they are not conversing with the rural industries. And I think that's why we're paying the su supreme sacrifice that we're paying. Dr Kim Horton is a co-CEO of the Regional Australia Institute. Kim manages the RAI's policy and research portfolio to make sure that the Institute's work has a practical application and make sure that we get better policy uh, for a more vibrant regional Australia and regional economies. Having worked on regional economic development in Australia for almost 20 years, he has a passion now for advocating for people who live in remote and regional Australia. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now, the question uh, from Peter Lewis was that what uh, needs to happen to the Australian political landscape to address the big challenges that the bush faces now and that they'll face in a short to medium term? It's not an easy question by any stretch. Dr Kim, what's your first reaction to a question like that? I think it requires a couple of cups of tea to get to the bottom of it. It's a really good question. There, there are, as you say, there are a lot of aspects to it. A couple of things that are really concerning us at the moment. Um, we had a, a terrific meeting about just over a month ago now, about 250 regional leaders. They made a very clear call for a number of very important changes to the way that regional matters are considered and dealt with at a government level, both, both state and federal. Uh, and they, one of the the messages that came across very clearly from them is that in many ways they feel like they're ahead of government. They're not waiting for their relative state or federal governments to act. They're doing a lot of things themselves. Uh, and they were looking for governments to sort of endorse and support the directions that they were taking. So there's a real incredible depth of capability in leadership in, in regional Australia. And I think one of the key messages and one of the you know, important responses to Peter's question is, you know, we'd actually like the, uh, the state and federal governments in particular to, to catch up. 
to recognise where regional growth is going and to, and to recognise the kind of priorities and actions that regional leaders are wanting to take and are taking and to, and to get on board with that. But we can't leave politics behind. The, the country just wouldn't work. We need to have politicians and work within the political system. So if you're feeling a sense of um, the region's kind of leading ahead, do we need to convert some of those regional leaders to politicians? Is that, what, is that what's required? <laughs> I think a lot of those regional leaders are doing what they're doing because they don't want to be part of a more structured, more formalised hierarchy at the state and federal level. Do you find that, that regional areas are satisfied with their current political representation or how the government is reflecting back to regional Australia? In fact, I think one of the big things, coming back to some of those some of those uh, sort of factual drives, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come to the politics in a minute, but coming back to some of those factual drivers, one of the big things that I think is un, under-recognised in, in the political system, both elected members and governments, is the enormous amount of turnover and churn in regional populations. There's a, there's a strong sense, I think, that the parties often take regional voters for granted, and I think governments certainly uh, have, a, have, have a sort of somewhat outdated notion of the, of the views and values of people living in regions. When we look across the regions, you know, there are 400,000 people moved from one of the capital cities to a regional area between 2011 and 2016. 400,000. Sydney has, for the last five years now, it's quite extraordinary, had a net outflow of people. So amongst people moving around in Australia, not talking about international migrations landing in Sydney, they're the only people who are keeping Sydney's population growing. Those of us moving around within Australia for the last five years have been net losses of people out of Sydney, about 20,000 people a year. On, on balance, are leaving more, are leaving Sydney than coming to it. The real change, what used to be the jewel in the crown of us, one of Australia's sort of leading places to, to desire to live in. There's stuff going on uh, in the regions that reflects this uh, great mobility of people, the lifestyle choices that people are making. Um, we've looked at places amongst those 400,000, some of the largest age groups of people 30 to 39, you know, typical sort of mid-career Family is important, want to spend more time with the kids, that, that's a real motivation. And then older people too, people over 60, people 60 to 70 are, often, are the other large group of people moving into, into regions. But even if we don't talk about one of the things these regional leaders told us was, you know, let, let's not keep reinforcing this city-country binary, this sort of divide. It's not a, not a, not a real issue for us as, as, as regional residents anymore. There's, there's too much sort of collection and connection and, and overlap. So just setting that aside, when we look at the movement within regions, I've, I've looked at a lot of... Towns uh, and small regions, and I haven't come across many where there is less than about a 20% turnover of people every five years. It's even in our inland places where headline population might be fairly steady, there's a lot of movement. The duck's sitting still on the pond, but underneath the legs are going like crazy. There's about 20% is, is, is a very typical sort of turnover level. So your local member who represents what they thought of as the sort of traditional electorate base, if they're not aware of and attuned to how that changing 20 to 30% is changing the value sets in those regions, then they're missing that connection. And I think this is what you're talking about. There is a where the disconnection comes from, I think uh, it might be characterised as, oh, our poor sort of bushies are not feeling like their voice is heard in our capital cities. But it's also that the nature of those bushies is really changing. And those, the needs and interests of those changing elect, rural, even rural regional electorates, not just regional electorates, that rural, changing values of our, our rural electorates, are, it's often difficult for our, our elected members to keep up with that. So what do you see as the main issues for regional and rural Australia right now? That, what, are the, what are the key ones that you guys are really focused on? The ones that there's four, there's four that came out of this meeting that we had the other day, which really resonated with us in terms of the work we've done over the last couple of years. 
one of those is that regions are, are getting a bit sick of having things done to them. They want to work with governments. They want to work with their elected members to get to, to work to do things with these other agencies, not 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 not, not be sort of passive recipients of, of things. So these notions about sort of that some governments are sort of talking talking around around sort of deal making, you know, getting, getting various levels of government, getting leaders empowered to do stuff is is pretty important. Um, there's a, a real sense that the the knowledge and agency that regions have about themselves is being undervalued. Uh, we have very few systems in place that enable uh, regions to sort of help help to map out their own destiny. You scratch any regional leader, they'll have been to any number of strategic planning sessions. Um, if they're not turning up anymore, it's for the very good reason that they don't expect that to lead anywhere. So, you know, for heaven's sake, these people know a lot about their places. A little bit of resourcing and empowerment of that would be good. But that would completely invert our current system where stuff comes from the top down. So actually acknowledge that it's a viable pathway for us to have things come in and be resourced from the bottom up. That's very risky for government, very risky for for, for, for potential investors because they don't, they don't have that same sense of control from the top down. There's a risk that some things might be not, 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 not be done the right way and the results might not be as expected. So that's a big part of it. Another part of it is, which is related, is around flexibility. So a lot of what regions are getting is a very pigeonholed and sort of tailored response to their, to their problems, whereas, in fact, what a lot of regions, particularly the more remote places, need is a more flexible and diversified uh, response mechanism. We don't have those in our in our system. Our system is very much designed around public accountability, clear lines of authority, audit committees, all that sort of stuff. That doesn't really work well in a region where, in order to get a, com- a particular community or social service working, for instance, you need to stitch together half a dozen different streams to make it work in in, in a remote area in, in particular. We're looking. We're in a system which is dominated in terms of service delivery by economies of scale. You know, we have endless amounts of contracts and contracts variation for very large-scale contracts for delivering employment services, for instance, classic. Economies of scale are paramount to the people that are trying to make a, make a quid out of delivering those services. And yet, again, in the regional area, it's not economies of scale that's important, it's, it's what we call economies of scope, where you can bring together the various elements of a, in, in a small town that might be needed to come together in order to help someone transition into a job or, or a meaningful sort of livelihood. I think the challenge is that once our elected members get elected, you know, they, they kind of get co-opted into the system to some degree. And the system says, no, we are now your elected representatives. We need to make some decisions. We need to be seen to be leading the process from, from here on. You know, We need to take some credit. And that's a fairly sort of natural sort of human pathway. But I think the same thing is, is sort of playing out in the government that our, our elected members, both sort of state and federal, are working in as well. There's a, there's a sense that those governments too want to be seen to be uh, you know, have the have the hands on the levers in in, in in that expression, rather than enabling the, uh, the regions to be playing more of a leading role themselves. What do you think it's going to take for that flexibility? Uh, a courageous government, a massive upheaval, or change in um, local representatives? Uh, it's a good question. I, I look, and, and it touches. It, it, it brings. It needs to bring all those pieces together, unfortunately, because when for, for government to, you know, if, if we talk about sort of inverting the system and allowing regions to be a little bit more self-determinating, self-determining about about how they how, how the resources that are sort of coming to them are, are spent, and how they can leverage that more. If we're talking about that sort of inverting, then uh, you know it needs to be de-risked as far as those uh, as those, as far as those funding agencies goes, which means the. Uh, there needs to be confidence that the organisations that are sort of taking the then, then having the, the role in determining how these resources are spent are, are worthy and are, they've got the capabilities needed. Um, but 
beyond that, uh, the, the big risk for government is that their is that their, their, their local member or their minister becomes exposed through some sort of malpractice or, or things go terribly wrong, and the media makes a big fuss about it, and then there's a whole lot of sort of collateral damage. So, in a sense, you know, we almost need the other end of that, which is the elected members and the ministers, to be willing to give that run that risk as well, you know, and, and have a bit of a have, have a bit more latitude and flexibility, so that there's there's room to room to room, room to fail. Uh, and remember to fail forwards in that sort of business jargon. Essentially, what we're looking here is, is, is for a system that will enable, particularly within service delivery uh, in government agencies, we're looking for, for a system that will enable some risk-taking, some piloting, some changing of the way that the current system works. And if it doesn't work, then there's, there's, there's processes for capturing that, stopping it early. We've proposed uh, uh, last year uh, uh, some, some, some ways of sort of de-risking it, which, which revolve around looking at the characteristics of places, I think if, if this place is in a particular hole at the moment and it's pretty intractable, uh, then why can't we sort of nominate, we, we can identify that, and there could be some thresholds you get to. But if we can agree that this, this place is in, is in deep trouble, you know, business as usual isn't going to fix it. So what do we need to do to, to, to arrange some uh, an environment in which some more creative uh, problem solving can take place? We need to say, okay, here's the place, so we define the boundaries of that place, and we could even say, here's a time period within which we're allowed to experiment. And we could even say, here are the sort of social or community service issues within which we're allowed to experiment. You can quarantine to, to some degree some of these processes, which might enable the sort of creativity to happen alongside with a, a sort of sensible risk management approach. Mm. With, I, I guess, you're going to need a degree of courage and a lot of leadership to push that sort of thing forward. You mentioned then about, um, you know, then then the local member will get some, um, you know, they'll be on the media then if, if things do go wrong. I'm interested to stick with that um, media. Do you think that the issues facing regional Australia are getting enough airtime or gaining enough attention to make them important for the government to solve? Um, I think they do. I mean, you know, we're all in the midst of a, of a relatively short sort of um, attention span sort of phase. So, you know, the drought's a classic one. We had a lot of uh, interest in the drought about uh, six months ago. That's kind of off the front pages again. I'm not saying anything that your regional listeners don't know about. I think it is quite sporadic. Uh, and I think the fourth big thing that our regional leaders talked about when they came to us in April was, you know, a real desire to see the narrative change so that it's a less less of a deficit-based, oh, poor regional people, they need some help. You know, there's another, there's another drama, whether it's an environmental problem like a drought or a flood or a fire or an earthquake. The narrative, you know, needs to shift to sort of represent the, more of the reality of that situation, which is that, yes, these are very intense sort of short-term typically problems for, for some places for some periods, which kind of under... Under, under values and under, under, under recognises that the sort of longer term growth challenges that a lot of our regions are facing, the, the job vacancy numbers, for instance, we've got, I think, got about 46,000 job vacancies across regional Australia this month, you know, so multiply that by 12 months. If those ones get filled, you've got a big turnover of people. Some of our regional places have seen those vacancy growth rates of 20, 30, 40% over the last couple of years. They're really, those skill shortages are really starting to bite and constrain economic growth. That doesn't get much airplay. You know, what, what we hear is the mining bust. What we don't hear is that the mining bust was actually very short-lived and that most of our mining areas have got these sort of 20, 30, 30% internet vacancy growth rates. So there's a real call from our regional leaders to, to shift that narrative and, and give exposure not just to the sad stories of, of regions but to the, the, the challenges, the growth constraints that they're facing too. 
Because it often is. It often is that natural disaster, the flash in the pan until the media cycle gets tired of it and then moves on. Is there enough political lobbying? We see, I guess, for regional areas, there's mining lobbies, there's agriculture lobbies. But is there enough lobbying being done uh, in Canberra on behalf of our inland uh, residents and communities? Uh, there's a fair bit. Uh, I think both parties have uh, backbench committees on uh, on regional matters. Uh, certainly we at the Institute, we see a number of delegations uh, on a very regular basis from, from often quite far-flung parts of Australia coming through Canberra. I presume they're doing the same things at the, at the state level. Uh, I think that the difficulty is that uh, it, it's hard for a government which is sort of designed around ministerial portfolios to really deal with the cross-cutting stuff. And what we've been talking about today really are, there's, there's a cross-cutting issue, there's lots of different portfolios, lots of ministers involved. So I think on the one hand, uh, there's a fairly, there's good representation. I think, I think the elected members generally do a really good job of bringing their messages to their capital cities, whether it's state or federal. Um, but it, it is hard for, for a government to respond when these issues are, are particularly cross-cutting. And I think that's where there's one of the challenges for, for government and for, and for ministerial representatives. I, I think you know, we'd like to see more of that sort of cross-portfolio discussion. We'd like to see more of that caucusing of, of regional members, regional issues, because they are, you know, you can't untangle them. I mean, when, when you're living in a small community, these things don't naturally untangle. They, they all form part of the whole, so it's a bit artificial. Mm, so a Minister for Regional Australia... Uh, portfolio wouldn't be enough? Uh, look, it wouldn't be enough, but it would be a really good way of tying together some of those threads, I think, uh, because we know that a lot of, when we go back to sort of that, that, that thing about sort of uh, that, uh, contracting through uh, competitive uh, tendering services, for instance, that, that tends to deliver a, a nice economy of scale for that particular portfolio, but if it then undermines the delivery of in, in, a, in, a, in a smaller centre where those economies of scale aren't available, we're talking about sort of markets that are very small and very in technical terms that are very thin, a Minister for Regional Australia or a Portfolio for Regional Australia ought to be able to flag that stuff and hopefully be able to sort of you know, kick a few shins under the table and try to get some of the structures lined up so that the costs of the likelihood of some damage coming from that was, was minimised. So I think some sort of, uh, co not coordinating is the wrong word, but some sort of um, uh, a place, a clearinghouse, I suppose, of, of, of assessment of how some of these policy changes might influence regions, I think that would be very, very beneficial. Now, we've been talking about a lot of big things at 100 miles an hour for a very short time, and I do need to let you go. So I'll just put to you our question, and this is for the in a nutshell answer. If you can be put, pinned down on one point, what needs to happen to the Australian political landscape to address the big challenges that the bush faces now and into the short to medium term? I think based on what we've been talking about today, I'd say a little bit of acceptance of risk about doing things differently and ability to, and a willingness to sort of do things differently. So whether that's a sort of regional deals approach or whether it's looking at ways of empowering regional leaders to have some more control over their destiny, I think a bit of a willingness to absorb some, uh, some sort of innovation in, in, in policy and programs in that regard will go a long way. Thank you, Dr King Horton. This podcast is supported by the Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland, a free, impartial, confidential, professional service funded by the Queensland and Australian Government for all rural businesses at risk of financial hardship. Do you need to deal with the elephant in your paddock and start talking to your family about farm business succession? 
There are funds available to pay for professional advice to help you look at different models and scenarios which could suit your family. Succession can be emotional and difficult, but if you have your options developed with the help of finance, taxation and business professionals in black and white, it can make starting the process less daunting. You have until the 30th of June 2019 to apply for the Q Rider Farm Management Grant, which will contribute up to 50% rebate for professional advice in relation to these discussions. There is up to $2,500 available per entity, so for a business with mum and dad and three siblings, that could be a saving of up to $10,000. This scheme is available to Queenslanders, so start looking at the growth of your business and access a Q Rider Farm Management Grant to help you with the cost of professional advice. <laughs>